Scano Sego Ani Bojo Kwe Kwe Tansi. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And I'd like to tell you that Moment of Truth is brought to you by APTN in part. And uh, it's great that we are able to bring this to you through APTN. We have two guests on the show today. Our first guest is Sapna Sharma, and she is an environmental um, uh, associate professor in the Department of Biology at York University. She's in the studio with us, and coming up later in the show, we have Donna May Kilmiarjuk. If I hope I've pronounced that correctly, but we'll find out soon enough. And she is the first Inuk cardiac surgeon in Canada. Looking forward to that conversation with her later on. But right now, let's get back to... Uh, Sapna Sharma, and uh, Sapna, it's great that you're here. Thanks for coming in today on on such uh, not the best of weather conditions. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So you work and study the environment, and specifically you look at lakes, I understand. That's correct. I'm interested in uh, predicting the impacts of environmental stressors like climate change, invasive species, habitat alteration on lakes around the world. Now, you use the word predicting. Um, That sort of sets up a little flag for me because there's a lot of information that we now have that we can look at to study these things. Is that not correct? That that is true. So I try to uh, gather data uh, both spatially extensive, so Mm -hmm. from lakes around the world, Mm -hmm. but also temporally extensive going back uh, 600 years to understand how... Uh, how the environment has changed and mm-hmm. how that's impacted lakes, and then to improve our predictions on how, uh, under, for example, climate change scenarios, lakes uh, may experience, undergo further change. So many things pop into mind. So many lakes. There must be how many lakes are there in the world? Oh my God! There's 117 million is wow. the latest estimate. And in Canada, we have about seven to nine million lakes. We have so many. Mm. We don't know exactly yeah. how many we have. And uh, lakes uh, feed into other lakes and feed into streams and feed into our rivers and et cetera, et cetera. It's all joined. You know, I, always, I often think of our planet as a living being because the lakes are the blood of the, of the earth, are they not? Yeah, they're essential for freshwater supply. Uh, humans rely on freshwater to survive. We need mm. uh, clean drinking water, which comes from rivers and lakes, ultimately. Yeah, and we keep hearing about how we are stressing those bodies of water and what we're doing to them. And, uh, and, and we do need these studies, but we keep also hearing about how time is running out very quickly on, for our ability to either change ourselves and have an impact on our planet to preserve it for our future generations. Because, you know, uh, there is a, there's, there's a, uh, an indigenous saying, you know, that, that we are, it, it's not our planet. It's, we're just borrowing it from our children. Mm-hmm. You know, we're leaving it to them. Whatever we leave, it, it goes to them. And um, that's, uh, you know, it, it, right now it doesn't look like we're, we're, we're leaving them anything very good. No, no. And uh, I think you um, hit the nail in the coffin with the idea of how rapid these changes are occurring. We're, we're predicting that within this next generation, uh, our ecosystems, our lake mm. ecosystems are, are expected to change dramatically yeah. in ways that we have never, uh, our children won't be able to experience the same winters, for example, that we have. Yeah. So having said that, you know, th- when we think about the environment at large, um, 
we look at even what we're experiencing in the last couple of days here, you know, and first of all, look at the winter we've had up until January sometime. We had zero snow. It was we had nothing cold weather a little bit. Um, and and that is a, a big change in itself. And now we get dumped on with this stuff and it's it's happening fast. It's happening differently. It's, it's still having a huge impact on us. We still think that, oh, this is winter and, you know, we're, we're still uh, experiencing this stuff. But but we don't tend to look at the bigger picture of, of what and how we have gotten to this point. You know, something that popped into mind when we were mentioning lakes is um, a number of years ago, I was sent up to um, uh, Iqaluit and, uh, and, and in the north and, and Nunavut. And uh, I went out on the land in Akviat. I was staying in Akviat at the time. And I remember the, the community people took me out and showed me this lake. And they said, we always used to swim there. And they said, we don't do anything there anymore. We, and I said, why not? And they said, well, it's dead. And I said, what do you mean it's dead? And they said, yeah, there's nothing in it. it. There's no fish. There's no anything in it. And I said, why? And they said, well, you know, all the pollution that you guys create, where do you think it goes? It goes into the atmosphere and it comes down up here. And it killed the lake. I, I could not believe that. We don't know what, we are, what, what, how, what the impact is that we are having around us. Exactly. There are even lakes in the Arctic which have uh, which have disappeared and evaporated uh, in recent recent decades uh, in recent years. And uh, just like you said, we we don't know how big this this issue is. And you know, we might be you know, polluting in in Toronto, for example. Mm. But what are the wide ranging consequences for mm. communities elsewhere, uh, especially communities further north? So what are these what are these stressors and the things that you look at when you're examining something? Uh, the stressor that I'm most interested in right now is climate change. Um, and that's because I think it's one of our, our biggest problems that humankind is currently facing. And I'm interested in how warming temperatures, changing precipitation levels, more extreme uh, weather events can uh, disrupt uh, lake ecosystems. So climate change to me, it's a big, big word to me. It's like a big topic. You know, it mm-hmm. covers so many things. Yeah. How do you start to break it down and, and be able to manage some of those things that you're looking at? Well, one of my favorite things to do as a scientist mm-hmm. is is work with big data and to work with uh, lots of numbers. I'm actually a number person. So <laughs> so for me, climate change is a very exciting endeavor because mm-hmm. it's such a, like you said, it's such a big problem. And so we can get, uh, what I do is I try to access information from different uh, groups of people uh, in terms of what the lake conditions are. But we also have global uh, estimates of how of air temperatures, of solar radiation, of precipitation, of wind speeds. And so you can start start putting those together into into complex models um, and, and, you know, go from there. So I, I actually like that okay. aspect of climate so, change. So yeah. you're a numbers person. You like yep. looking at the big picture. You yep. like looking at big numbers. Uh, there must be some big numbers by this point in time that you can look at and say some definitive answers about what we're doing and, and where we're going. There there definitely are. Uh, clearly the world, uh, what, for example, I looked at a global, I was part of a global study where mm-hmm. we looked at water temperatures around mm-hmm. the world for over 50% of the freshwater supply. 
And we found that 90% of the world's lakes are warming. And that's something definitive that we can say they're warming faster than air temperatures, they're warming faster than ocean uh, ocean temperatures. And and so that's, that's sort of a, a first step in understanding how global this, this problem really is. Uh, we just looked at how lake ice loss, uh, mm-hmm. how extensive lake ice loss yep. may be around the world. And we looked at 1.4 million lakes around the world. And we estimated that currently um, 15, about 15,000 lakes do not no longer freeze every winter, which historically did uh, did freeze. And this number can increase up, all the way up to 230,000 uh, lakes if, if air temperatures uh, warm by up to 8 degrees Celsius. That brings a couple of questions to mind. One is, is what is causing them to, uh, to warm? Is it coming from internal heat from underneath or is it coming from the sun? I mean, where is the, you know, is a combination of those things? Is the planet heating up? Yes. <laughs> Just as simple as that, the planet is warming. Uh, air temperatures are warming and uh, they have been um, since since Industrial Revolution, but the rate of change of warming mm. has really increased since the 1970s. So I, I guess what I'm asking by that is is that we know it's rising, but are, are we talking about our atmosphere only, or are we talking about the planet itself? That's what I guess what I'm wondering about. Is the planet temperature rising and allowing these, these is, is it just our surface temperature and the atmosphere that is causing this, or is the body, the body, the planet itself oh, internally heating? Uh, I know the atmosphere mm-hmm. is is warming uh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because I would assume that if the atmosphere is is warming, yep. that might have a, a might have a, a an effect on the internal uh, temperature of the planet. It could. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So so none of these things sound very positive. If we're our lakes our lakes aren't freezing because that has a has has a an effect on wildlife yeah. on on the, the the fish on the 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 the, the uh, creatures that live there certainly water temperature has has an effect on they they live in certain temperatures if that di- disappears then yep. they won't be able to exist i imagine because that yeah you know. we're finding in ontario already that uh, the temperatures are warming mm. uh, so much that we ha- we now have invasive uh, warm water fishes that mm. are um, dominating our ecosystems like smallmouth bass and our uh, cool water and cold water predators like walleye and lake trout populations mm. are are declining quite a bit. Um, already, we're we're seeing uh, we're seeing these changes. When we when we throw this the system into havoc, and and I'm I'm guessing we're assuming this. Uh, we haven't said this right now, but but what man is doing? Man is is contributing to this. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. And he's contributing through. Through increases in greenhouse gas emissions, through and whatever, that a, a large industrialization, part of that is, is vehicles. Um, there, there's industry. a variety industry, uh, vehicles, um, population growth, mm. uh, methane production. Mm. Uh, there's a whole variety of factors that are so at play here. The other thing I think about when you say that is when you say population, we keep expanding and taking more and more earth away from fertile land where we want to have built homes. Yeah. Uh, reducing our ability to have land for growing crops, et cetera, et cetera. But we're also reducing the ability for for plants, trees that helped contribute to to uh, oxygen uh, and and uh, and wildlife habitat. Mm-hmm. So, 
how much uh, how much of that is now affecting what we're doing just in in terms of taking taking away from the physical footprint of of the uh, planet to do it, things it has a big impact obviously so um so the the fact that we're uh polluting more mm. uh releasing more greenhouse gas emissions has a big impact but the the land use changes associated with urbanization um associated with agriculture production mm. the the loss of biodiversity around the world is staggering and we we hear of studies every week mm. about you know declines of insects of mm-hmm. declines of mammal populations of de- you know they're they're quite extensive uh because of of the changes that we're bringing in either through climate change land use changes or introducing invasive species uh into areas where where they're not supposed to be. How difficult is this for you when you study this stuff to look at it and see what's going on, and and you see what we're doing? How, how you know how how difficult is it, or or what do you what when you look at these numbers and they they you know obviously uh, show you you know answers. They show you answers about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. How is it? How, how do you find and how I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, getting that message out because we don't seem to be hearing it. Yeah. Doesn't matter what we do. Yeah. As last year was especially tough because of uh, all the hurricanes that mm. were impacting uh, the Caribbean islands, and and we had you know thousands of people mm. uh, losing their lives, losing their homes, uh, but also these islands just mm. going underwater. Yeah. And it was 2018 as climate. Climate change scientists haven't predicted that mm. uh, to occur until late twentieth, uh, 21st century. So yeah. the fact that we're already experiencing... So it's accelerating it's faster accel- than Yeah, and that's that's alarming to yeah. me. Um, but then that also, for me, that provides motivation to to try to, try to you know, uncover, uncover some answers, try to think about different ways we can, uh, we can tackle... Um, the issue, these issues of uh, surrounding climate change, and I, and I think you, for me, I, I'm still an optimist mm. um, because we have so many people who are who are working towards um, solving this issue of climate mm. change. We have so many young people, mm-hmm. you know, galvanizing support and uh, attracting attention to uh, or finding new technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we we keep that optimism and we keep supporting the younger generation in uh, achieving uh, achieving their goals, because this really is is a is a problem for for our chil- our, us and our children um, having a you know inhabitable planet. Um, so I I feel like if we become pessimists, you don't do anything about it. Mm. So I, I'm trying to remain on optimist as, as think, much as I, I think can. we have to I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the two things that uh, I feel are probably very strong in the favor of what you were talking about being an optimist and that is new technology and and the, the the more and more young people coming forward to speak up and because the young people are going to eventually take over the jobs that are running the country and running industry and if they have that belief about about uh, about uh, taking responsibility for the planet, that we have to, we can't just not look at, we can't just look at the dollar figures anymore. We can't just keep bulldozing over this planet and expect nothing to happen. And yep, hopefully, exactly. you know. And these young people will be voting. Yes. Soon. 
Yes, and yeah. hopefully that uh, because it, it seems like it's a, an ongoing battle between um, between the planet and and our development as people with industry and expansion and and all of those things that uh, that that we we are currently struggling with trying to balance out. Now, you might be asking your background. Where where are you from? I'm where actually from Brantford, Ontario. Uh, the home of Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. Just uh, 100 kilometers southwest of here. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And your background? You're, uh, I'm, uh, my parents are from India. Okay. Um, what part of India? That's a big Pun- country. A it's a big people. country from Punjab. Okay. Yep. So. So were you born here? I was born in Canada. Okay. Yeah. My dad arrived uh, like. 47 years ago or something. Okay. Yeah. And do you ever go back to the country? Have you ever been back? I've been twice. Yeah. Yeah. And how do, how was that for you? Um it was it was interesting mm-hmm. because uh you really you really see all, you know, in Canada we have a very simple life. Mm. In in terms of we have access to clean water. Mm. We we uh in most places, yep. not everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but in India, it's it's tough. There's uh, a lot of lot of people. Um, the it's a it's a beautiful country, and there's you know it's beautiful colors, mm. uh, very vibrant. But the access to clean water, access to wastewater management systems, isn't uh, developed in the in the really? towns where my parents. Uh, grew up. Um, it's really interesting. Yet yeah, these, these people are surviving there. And, yeah, and they they thrive and they, they move on and they well, it's, it's a huge population in India. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so when you when you when you look at that country and you go to visit, um, as someone that's an environmentalist and and and, and working in the with the environment, um, what do you take away from that? Um, I I guess I take away that uh, we. I used to work a lot on um, fish habitat mm. and fish uh, populations okay. and in- invasive fishes. And uh, I remember my family in India saying, why do you work on work on fish? Like, <laughs> is that important? Mm. And and then you uh, visit the country and you see like, well, the like the one of the number one issues is clean water. Mm. And so I've sort of shifted my research directions mm. To get at the state, uh, get at how do we, you know, how do we keep our, preserve our water quality mm. um, for for drinking water, for recreation, but, um, and for fisheries, but also ultimately we need access to clean, clean drinking water and all of the stressors that humans are putting onto our, our lakes can really degrade it. Yeah. Um so if there was if there was one thing from your from your work that you have seen thus far that you would want to get out to the general population uh, what would that be Um that's a very good question. Uh I so from my recent work on mm-hmm. on lake ice the number one thing I would want to get out is that uh these climate changes are happening much faster than uh than we might have thought so we're we're expecting lakes that froze every single year Mm. have frozen every single year since you know the 150 year time record that that we have of them are either no longer freezing or within could within the next five to ten years start uh not freezing every winter and for me the 
uh, rapidity of how how fast these changes are are occurring is is a really um, is is really important. The other thing is uh, to get out how important lakes are. Um, yeah. So, like I mentioned, there are 117 million lakes around the world, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, in Toronto, we we have Lake Ontario. Mm here um and it provides access to mm. clean drinking water it provides access to for recreation op- opportunities um but a lot of people rely on on freshwaters we all rely on freshwater system mm. and we really need to to do our best to protect it and uh the fact that these environmental changes are impacting the water quality so soon um really stresses the importance of the issue. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Today on the show, we have two guests. Our first guest that we're talking to right now is Sapna Sharma. She is an associate professor in the Faculty of Science at the Department of Biology and at York University. And coming up in a little bit, we're going to be talking with Donna May Killam... I'm sorry, this is a difficult last name. Kelly. Kim Eliarjek. I hope I am getting that correct. And she is the first Tanook cardiac surgeon in Canada. So we're looking to forward to speaking with her coming up later on. Uh, Sapna, I wanted to ask about, you know, you, you mentioned just before the break about lakes not freezing and the effect that that could have uh, and, and these effects that are happening in our environment much quicker than we expected. Scientists are, are, are looking at the data and predicting certain things, as you mentioned earlier, but but that's now accelerating. Yeah. And do, are you able to say at what how much of an acceleration it is happening at twice, five, ten times than we thought? Yeah, we we can say that, uh, and it depends on the lakes. Mm. Um, so each lake might um, might mm. behave a bit differently. Um, there's there's one of my favorite lakes to that I've studied is Lake Suwa in Japan. Okay. And it's a lake that has an ice record that goes back to 1442. Okay. And that's because Shinto priests on who lived uh on the on the lake have 15 generations of these Shinto priests wow. have kept track wow. of of the of the freeze record mm. every single year. Wow. And uh, the reason why they kept track of it was because there's a, a their tradition yes. says that uh, a god and goddess live together in a shrine mm-hmm. on the lake. Mm. And uh, sometimes what happens when people live together for too long, they got into a disagreement and the goddess moved out. <laughs> and she built herself a shrine uh, on the other side of the lake. Okay. But every winter, the god would cross the lake with his dragon to try to make amends with mm. the goddess. Mm. And so... The Shinto priests tracked this ridge that formed on the lake, uh, kept records of it on on rice paper and in historical diaries. We have uh, records of these. And from there, we can get really long-term records of climate because lake ice is a really strong indicator of climate. And this goes back before the Industrial Revolution. And so something as simple as does a lake freeze or not can tell us a lot about extreme events. So Mm -hmm. in the first 250 years of the time series, the lake did not freeze three times, and that was associated with widespread famine in the region. In the last 10 years, the lake only froze two times. And uh, this has been persistent over the last uh, three decades. So if we think about something as simple as does a lake freeze or not, that really gives us an indication of how fast the climate is warming, particularly before the Industrial Revolution. So we have examples of these kinds of lakes and rivers from around the world 
that we can calculate trends, uh, trends for to see how fast the rates of, of change, how fast, fast are these lakes warming, and then what those drivers might be. And it seems as if climate and air temperature increases are really driving across the world these earlier ice breakups, later ice freezes, and or complete loss of ice cover. Now, when you mention that about this lake in Japan, and am I to understand you correctly that this is over 1,500 years they've documented this? Is that no, 600 years. 600 years. Yep. So 600 years, and during... And and when it only froze, it only it did not freeze. Did you say twice? Three times Three in times? the first two hundred fifty years. In the first two hundred and fifty years. Okay, so then yeah. after that, from two hundred and fifty years on. Yep. What I know, you said the last three decades, but what has happened between there? Because that again, there must be ups and downs in valleys. There and are, uh, but since the industrial revolution started, yeah. um, there there's been increases yeah uh so every 50 year period there there would be a few um years in which the lake did not freeze and then since about 1950 uh the lake was not freezing every one out of four years and since 1988 the lake is not freezing uh eight out of ten years so i mean that that sounds like pretty heavy duty information it is to validate the, the change that we're going through yeah. Is that information uh, looked at seriously? Is it taken as scientific information? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. We've published uh, scientific studies on this lake as well as uh, another river in mm-hmm. Finland and Scandinavia mm-hmm. that we have records going back before the Industrial Revolution. And the great thing about these records is that they're collected by humans. Mm. And, uh, you know, the Shinto priests weren't thinking about climate change when they started uh, started these records. And um, and but for them, it really means a loss of tradition. So we Mm. still speak to the current uh, Shinto priest. And in the past, they held this ceremony every winter. And there's a purification ceremony that's around it. uh, And now it rarely happens. Uh, And so the community around this religious ceremony uh, is is breaking. Fascinating. It's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, but but sad. But you know, sad. It's interesting, yeah. But sad. Yeah. Um, and it, it's really uh, disheartening to hear uh, those kind of things and the impact we are having. So, you know, the other thing I think about when you say the lakes aren't freezing, then I think about evaporation. Mm-hmm. So the lakes will then have an, more of an opportunity to evaporate. Exactly. And you mentioned that some lakes have already disappeared. Yeah. And then that would have an impact on wildlife yep. <laughs> and growth, of, and growth. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And availability of fresh water. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's take one thing. So uh, let's say a small lake evaporates. So now you've got uh, a fresh water in that area for, you know, a certain amount of, of habitat life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fish life have all gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens to the vegetation now? That, that, yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly. <laughs> okay. I'm not a terrestrial ecologist. I haven't studied that. Uh, I can't imagine that it's uh, that it's good. Um, but I can't tell you exactly yeah, how yeah, no it worries. might change. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just because it's all connected, right? It's it all, is all connected. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. So and I think th- the indigenous communities have a lot to offer I would t- in terms of you know documenting. I appreciate you saying changes, that. Yeah. I I know for a fact that indigenous communities 
uh, in and around this nation and across Turtle Island or North America, as it's called, uh, have their own oral history about all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, can, I don't know why the knowledge is not being accessed, to be quite honest, but yep. uh, there you go. Yep. Um, now, so let's go back to the lakes. Lakes are, Some of these lakes are evaporating. They're not freezing anymore. That water goes into the atmosphere. How does that affect things? Um, well, I'm not exactly sure, but it, it becomes part of the water, the water cycle. Um, I, I don't know at a local level how that might impact, impact the system other than, uh, the, you know, loss, loss of water and and the associated loss. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just thinking that if there's more, if there's evaporation and it goes into the atmosphere, it's got to come down somewhere. It's It's got to go somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. Right. So hence, uh. Changes we're seeing and more volatile uh, uh, storms, maybe, and, and those kind of things that might have an impact. Do, do, yeah. do you know much about how the northern, northern and southern atmospheres differ at all in terms of, of that kind of stuff? Lakes, are there, is there any impact on northern or hemisphere, southern hemisphere? Uh, in the, well, most of the, a lot of the, more lakes are found in the northern hemisphere mm-hmm. than the southern hemisphere. Okay. Um, very few lakes in the Southern Hemisphere freeze. Um, we also have very little data from the Southern Hemisphere mm. because, um, so we'll have some from Australia, New Zealand. Uh, we have a few representative lakes in Africa, like mm. Lake Tanganyika, mm. but a lot of, um, there isn't very much information, especially long-term information mm. on, on lakes in the Southern Hemisphere. And so what the scientists uh, are, are starting to do is team up with satellite um, remote mm, sensing researchers sure. to try try to get a handle on mm-hmm. how uh, how lakes are changing in in the southern um, the southern hemisphere mm. but as a as a limnology community uh, we don't have as much information as we do in the north mm. So when you're looking at something, a lake or, or a group of lakes or a, sp- a specific area, how long do you research? How long, how long does it take for you to research something like that and gather the data that you're looking for? Um, it can take quite a while. So the water temperature study that mm. I, I mentioned where yeah. we have the first uh, global estimate of warming in lakes, I believe we started that in 2009 and okay. it uh, ended and we published it in 2015. Mm. Because it it took us so um, such a long time to gather information from disparate mm-hmm. sources, mm-hmm. and uh, we wanted to try to reach out to uh, regions that aren't usually uh, well represented in in our in our literature. Mm. And uh, organizing all of that data, it it took a, a long a long time. Mm. Um, the the Lake Ice Project. Uh, my collaborator, John Magnuson at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, he started this lake ice, collecting lake ice information in the 1990s. And so we're we're really, it's taken decades to put together data for, we have 1,200 lakes and rivers around the Northern Hemisphere that we have time series for. Um, and I'm in the process of currently updating those, but it takes years to to collate all that information, verify it, mm. and and then be able to provide it open access to others. 
So when, how large is a lake, by the way? When does a lake become a lake rather than a pond or, or something like that? How does that work? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. There isn't a definite answer, actually. Mm. On some people have different estimates. Some say if you can't throw a rock across across <laughs> a water body, then uh, that's a lake. Uh, oh, there's there's definitions of mm. lakes. If you have uh, macrophyte growth, those are aquatic plants. Mm. If those are able to grow mm. within the water body, mm. then that's categorized as a lake. Um, does, but they're you know they're anywhere from less than one hectare to you know, mm. the Great Lakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and what about depth? How's, how's depth affect water and water temperature and, and the kind of things? I mean, I remember hearing like Lake Superior very yep. deep and that there's salt at the bottom of that lake. Yeah, so Lake Superior is, is a good example. Um, in our water temperature warming study, we mm. found that it was the second fastest warming lake in the world. Wow. Um, and you wouldn't think that because it's so big. Yeah. But it also is a lake that's, uh, beginning to lose ice cover, so it no longer freezes every winter, and the depth is is a major factor because it takes longer for uh, for it to warm up in mm. the summer, and then mm-hmm. longer for for it, the lake to uh, cool down right. in the winter. And so those changes associated mm. with uh, its depth are are really important. So we find that large lakes are might be some of the most vulnerable. Mm. Um, mm. whereas small, you know, a shallow lake or yeah. small ponds, they're going to freeze yeah. uh, as long as the temperatures are below zero. Right. Um, but when you have these larger lakes or urbanization, we're on the shores of Lake, uh, Lake Ontario yeah. in the Toronto Harbor. There was a ice record series that goes back to the 1800s okay. for the Toronto Harbor. But since this extensive urbanization, uh, we, we can't rely on it. So speaking of the Great Lakes, um, yep. what what is you, what have you what have you studied or what have you seen about the Great Lakes aside from the temperatures that you just mentioned? What 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 are the what is the impact? On well, them? the Great Lakes are extensively studied uh, yeah. because they are so important, right. uh, comprising twenty percent of the world's freshwater supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've uh, we've studied um, algal blooms within the lake, so water quality. Mm. And uh, increases in, in temperature can be mm. associated with increases in algal blooms, but may also lead to toxic algal blooms forming. As you you may remember from 2011 in Lake Erie, uh, where toxic algal blooms formed around a, a town in Ohio mm. and hundreds of thousands of people did not have access to, to clean water for several days. Um we have issues surrounding uh, fisheries changes mm. um, associated with climate, um, such as the loss of habitat for cold water, native cold water fisheries, but also issues around invasive species. The Great Lakes is a, is a great hub for invaders. Uh, hundreds mm. of invasive species live within in the lake, which can change uh, the whole ecosystem. So right. the zebra mussels and yep. quagga mussels are a yep. great example of the sea lamprey. Another, I hear there's another fish. The Asian carp. Oh, man. Yeah. 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 And they're trying to prevent that from getting into the lakes, I believe. Exactly. They're, it's it, uh, it's along the shores of Lake Michigan mm. right now. They're in Chicago, in the Chicago River. Um, yeah. But they I, haven't made it to the Great Lakes I've yet. heard they've got some kind of a, an electronic thing. Yeah, uh, electric it, barriers. barriers. They've got yeah. three of them or something yeah. to try and get them. To try to keep them out. Because when Asian carp invade, they're... Often associated with 
uh, loss of biodiversity in fishes, right. but also loss of habitat degradation. Yeah, and if, if people ha- do not know the Asian carp, you can look it up online and see some of the, the images of I think in the Mississippi. Yep. Uh, that oh my. Man, they fly into the air. They jump into the amazing. air. And they have these uh, these these competitions to see who can get the most of them because there's just so many of them down yeah, there. Yeah. And yep. uh, and they and they're jumping. Because apparently they get startled very easily. I think that's what I read. Yeah, I think it might be associated with a physiological response when mm. they uh, to boat motors, mm. and so then they jump in the air and they can yeah. jump fifteen feet in yeah. the air. And they, you know, there's videos of them yeah. injuring yeah. Uh, anglers yeah. and uh, different ways people are trying to yeah. trying to um, hunt for them. And, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's quite something. Now you meant you mentioned these ang- ang- anglo blooms. Um, Al- algal Al- blooms. Algal yeah. blooms. Algae Sorry. Blooms, yeah. And that's the algae, right? algae. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and um, and and like you said, they're 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 they're. How do they? How do they? How do, how's that form? Is that from temperature? No. So algae are formed uh, from nutrient additions. Okay. Uh, so nutrient additions from from the the shoreline of the lake can mm. come in the form of you know urbanization. Mm. Um, they can come from industry and effluent, mm. but also agriculture is a is a big source. Mm. So when nutrients are added into the lake, if, you know, the Great Lakes have also lost a lot of their coastal wetlands, yeah. which used to be important to buffer uh, the, the uh, incoming nutrients into the lake through runoff. Yeah. And um, and so if you have nutrients entering a lake, you can, uh, when you get to excessive amounts, yeah. they can promote these algal algal blooms. And what, what can happen, what usually happens actually in most summers and most lakes, is that these algal blooms form, they spread, uh, but at some point they they don't have access to enough light. And that's mm. when they start decomposing. Mm. And as they're decomposing, uh, the bacteria come in, bacteria come in, decompose uh, the algae and, and respire, consume oxygen. Mm. And that's when oxygen levels in, in lakes can, uh, can decrease, right. leading to the loss of, of wildlife. Um, so it's... Suffocating like, them, basically. Yeah, basically. Wow. And and then some of these algal blooms can form, have these uh, toxic, uh, yeah. toxic forms, yeah. which can be uh, can be a problem for human health as well. Yeah, and, and as you're saying that, if I remember correctly, there's something about fertilizer that yep. is in the runoff that yep. contributes to that. Exactly. So listen, we're we're quickly running out of time, uh, Sapna, and and I. I, I I'm sorry to say because it's been fascinating speaking with you, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and, and speak with us today. Yeah, thanks for your interest in talking about the environment. And today. York University is my old school, so it's oh, great, that, uh, great that you're able to come in here. So, <laughs> Sapna Sharma, she is uh, an expert in environmental stressors on lakes, and she is uh, an associate professor from the Faculty of Science and the Department of Biology, and that's at the Keele campus. That is. So I want to thank uh, uh, Sapna for coming in and sharing that information. Something for us all to think about as we uh, as we look at uh, what we are doing to our environment and what we are willing to do to help create uh, a better place for us, our children, and the the planet uh, itself. And we're back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. On the line from uh, Frozen in Ottawa, I believe we have Donna May Kil- Kim- Kimeliarjuk. Am I saying that correctly, Donna? Close enough. Kimmelarjuk. Kimmelarjuk. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> no Kim, Kimmelarjuk. Kimmelarjuk. I'll try and say that correctly next time. Listen, thank you very much for uh, being on the show with us today. No, thank you so much for having me. And you're in Ottawa, correct? Yes. 
And uh, I understand it's pretty nasty there today. I think so. I mean, to be honest, I was on call last night, so I just slept in the hospital. So I haven't been outside <laughs> in over 24 hours. I don't know what it's like out there. <laughs> well, maybe that is a bit of a blessing in some ways. Yes. Uh, so, you know, that's interesting that you mentioned you, you were on call, so you slept at the hospital. Uh, that is, I guess, uh, just, uh, just part of the, the life of being a, a, a cardiac surgeon and, uh, and working in that line of work. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've, I've, unfortunately, it's one of the the negatives I think about the job is the work life balance. So I'm 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 mostly live at the hospital. It's really my second home. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, there's other there's other jobs that are like that, of course, and professions that demand a lot of your time and and that 24 hour uh, 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 availability uh, that you have to have uh, put yourself out for. Um, and it's not all the time, right? I mean, you guys work shifts and you have to, uh, you, you'll get extra time off at a later date, I'm guessing, or something like that. Uh, sometimes, mm. yeah, sometimes. Um, I, the way I think of it is, as a surgeon is it's, it's not so much shifts. You're, you're, you do the work that you need to do and you're done when the job is done. Mm. So sometimes that means it's only 12 hours, sometimes 14 hours, sometimes it's 30 hours. Uh, but you do the work that you need to do for your patients. So... So uh, tell me a little bit about your past, if you don't mind, because uh, it's interesting that um, you're, you're the first in a cardiac uh, surgeon in Canada. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it, it's cool. I mean, I, going through my, my journey to be getting to where I am now, I never thought of myself as, oh, I'm going to be the first. And, no. oh, you know, it's so great that I'm the first. No, no. I mean, um, really, it just came from a passion of wanting to help people and loving science from a very young age. So it really stemmed from a conversation that I had with my father when I was six years old. And I was asking him why I didn't know his father, because Mm -hmm. I was fairly close with the rest of my grandparents. Mm -hmm. And he explained to me uh, that his father died of a disease called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. And I remember how clearly but kindly he explained that to me at the age of six and explaining, you know, it's this terrible disease that basically eats away at the nerves in your body and there's, there's unfortunately no cure. And, and so you lose the ability to walk, you lose the ability to feed yourself, to write, to even talk. Um, but the whole time your brain is working perfectly fine. You're able to understand people, you're still able to think clearly, but you're not able to be in control of your body. And that, to be honest, scared me a little bit, thinking, like, gosh, like, I don't want that to happen to my mom or my father, mm. and I don't want that to happen to other parents' kids, or other kids' parents. And so, you know what, I, I want to become a doctor, I want to become a neurosurgeon so I can invent a, um, an operation that's going to cure this disease. And that really was my, my driving force all throughout elementary and high school and even throughout university, that pursued or pushed me into wanting to go into medicine so I could help others. Well, thanks for, for telling me that. Now, where did you grow up, by the way? So I really, my, my hometown uh, is Chesterfield Inlet, where my family is from, but I, Ottawa is where I've been, I've been raised almost my whole life. Mm. And, and um, how close are you to your, your, your Inuit side uh, of, of your culture? Oh, I would say very close. I mean, growing up, um, we 
would visit up north. Uh, we'd have our family from up north come down and visit us. Uh, actually, my parents decided on raising the kids in Ottawa because there's a very large Inuit community here, mm-hmm. so we could still be connected to our culture. But um, they raised us in Ottawa because they wanted their kids to have better educational opportunities in, sure. a, in a big city. Um, and so uh, growing up, oh, yeah, we'd be involved with the uh, local Inuit organizations. Uh, we'd have Inuit at our house all the time. We'd have Bannock. We'd have Muktak, uh, frozen caribou, frozen fish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great. That's, that's wonderful that you were able yeah. to, to, you know, and it's wonderful that they kept that connection for you. That's that's really Absolutely. good. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so uh, growing up in, in Ottawa, you you had this opportunity for better education and um and, and you have still have this connection to your culture. Uh, and and I'm just wondering so when when you started to get this interest in in medicine or helping people, uh how how soon did you start to see this direction into into uh, in the surgery and, and, and the heart, you know, when did that start to become an interest? Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I decided at age six that I wanted to be a surgeon, I really didn't know what that entailed besides doing operations. Like I didn't know anyone in medicine at all, or had never, I've never even had surgery myself, but I just felt this compelling, need to be a surgeon or that I was very drawn to it. And I think it stemmed from really, I liked working with my hands. Mm. Like I liked the idea of being able to do something with my hands, something tangible and see tangible results. And so getting into medical school, I thought, okay, I still want to do surgery. Uh, And I thought perhaps maybe still neurosurgery, but then it came to our heart and lung course. So they were teaching us everything about the heart and about the lungs in medical school. And I just was so drawn to the heart. I mean, it was the most fascinating thing to me. The physiology was so interesting. Um, Seeing how debilitated patients can be by heart disease and then how much of an improvement you can have on their lives by doing open heart surgery, I just thought, wow, like this this is my calling. This is where I need to be. And, and I, so I shadowed some open heart surgeries and seen how sick the patients can be, how intricate the surgeries are, um, how much it relies on good surgical techniques, so having good hands. That was all really appealing to me. Um, and so thankfully, uh, I, I, I pursued it and, and got, got into a training program to make me a heart surgeon. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things there, like you you said, steady hands and and the intricacy and and uh, and and all of those kind of elements that that go into this. Um, for uh, I mean, you have to have good steady hands, I'm sure. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I mean, the the good thing about surgery is you can you can train just about anyone to mm. do to do surgery, no matter what type it is. Um, mm. But what I like about heart surgery is you're, you're working with very small needles, operating on very small arteries often. Um, mm. So it, it adds a little extra layer of challenge that you might not get in all types of surgery. So, uh, but the good thing is, is these training programs are designed to, to make you to be able to do that operation at the end of your training. So I, I have to ask you, what are you seeing or what, uh, what are you seeing in the way of technological advances that are in your line of work that are that are coming down the pipe or that have have made it a huge impact on on what you do 
That's a great question. So really in all surgical specialties, and now especially in heart surgery, everything is moving towards a minimally invasive type approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, So traditionally our surgeries and what we still do every day here most often is uh, we go through the middle of your breastbone and it's a big cut to be able to get access to your heart. Uh, But understandably so, patients are not too keen or people are not too keen to have that done to them. So now we're looking at doing procedures just through a groin incision um, or doing small incisions on the side of the chest to be able to do their bypasses or valves. Uh, and there's constantly newer technology that's being created. So there's things like artificial hearts or uh, pumps that are put into the heart to help the heart function when your heart is failing. And that's even going, you know, be getting smaller and smaller. Uh, so it is a, it's an exciting time for heart surgery because we're having to adapt and learn these new technologies. But I also think it's, it's really exciting for patients patients too. So they're able to, you know, have a quicker recovery uh, and good quality of life after these types of surgeries. Yeah, I guess. And, and, and it's less, not only less invasive, but, but as you mentioned, uh, I imagine that you mentioned recovery, uh, just, just, the, just having uh, uh, smaller incisions, as you said, it just is, it's less stress on the body. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm just also wondering, in your line of work, as, you, as you're studying the heart and you look at, at what is happening to us as a, as a, a, a species of, of humans, what, what are you seeing or what advice might you give someone um, to help them have a healthy heart and, and, a, and a good life with that heart that they're given? Yeah, so, you know, with the aging population uh, and people living much longer than we did, you know, 30, 50 years ago, the, the uh, prevalence of heart disease is on the rise. And so I love operating, but I would also love it probably even more if patients don't need to come and see me for open heart surgery because mm-hmm. really the key is prevention. Mm-hmm. So there are some things that are out of your control that you can't change that might put you at risk for having heart disease. Like you can't pick who your parents were and your genetics. So that might put you at increased risk. You can't, as much as we like to focus on anti-aging, you, you can't fix or, or reverse your age totally, right? If you're a 70-year-old patient, you're, you know, you're, you're, 70 years old. Uh, So those things you can't change, but there are a lot of things that are in our control to prevent heart disease. So things like trying to eat a balanced diet, as cliche as it sounds, but a healthy balanced diet, exercise, and it doesn't have to be fancy gym equipment or expensive gym memberships. Just the biggest thing I tell my patients is walking. That's one of the best things you can do for your heart. Uh, Managing stress and anxiety, managing things like if you have high blood pressure or high cholesterol, uh, and diabetes is really on the rise and such a huge risk factor for heart disease. Um, unfortunately, I'm seeing folks who are not, you know, managing their diabetes. They're not taking their medications. They're not checking, uh, checking their sugars, and they're at huge risk for heart disease. And one of the biggest things still to this day is smoking. Mm. So uh, quitting smoking or not smoking at all is one of the best things you can do for your heart. Uh, and I know it's really hard to quit, but... Uh, stick with it if you are someone who's thinking about quitting or trying to quit, uh, because the benefits are so huge. Now, when you say the the heart and smoking, of course, we always think about the lungs. They're the ones that are taking in this smoke, and and uh, and and it's the the first line of of uh, uh, not defense, but it's the first line of uh, of 
uh, offense that is getting the smoke. Um, how is it affecting the heart? What happens, you know, after that smoke is taken into the body that affects the heart? Yeah, so the, the, the chemicals that are inhaled in cigarettes are actually helping to create blockages in mm. the arteries of your heart. And not just in your heart, but also elsewhere in your body. A lot of patients in their legs can be affected by smoking, for example, so, oh, or yeah. with their brain. So um, really what we're seeing, the, the link between smoking and heart disease, is it's creating these blockages. Um, and these plaques that people might, people might have heard of the word plaque mm. used a lot. And smoking is such a huge accelerator for those to form. Hmm. Interesting. So um, as, as a, a woman of, of indigenous heritage and, uh, and, and someone like yourself being the first in this, in, in this uh, desire to at least being recognized as such, um, what, what advice would you have for, for younger people coming up and, uh, and what would you say to them about, about following their dream and, and doing this kind of thing? I would really say to, to young folks um, who are pursuing whatever dream they may have um, to go after it. I mean, it doesn't matter if you, you know, don't know anyone who's doing what you want to do. Uh, like, I didn't know anyone in medicine. I didn't know uh, any uh, indigenous heart surgeons. I only knew of maybe one or two female heart surgeons at all uh, when I was going through my uh, medical school. And so... I didn't let that deter me away, uh, you know, despite being it being a little intimidating, not knowing people that are like me or potentially having strong role models that I could identify with. I just, I felt this drive, I felt determined, and I wasn't going to let anything get in my way or stop me. So if you feel passionate about something, uh, don't be intimidated away from going after your dreams because it really is possible with a lot of hard work and dedication. Now you mentioned a couple of things there, uh, hard work, um, long hours. Now, Donna, the other mm-hmm. thing that comes to mind is I'm wondering about support, you know, family support. Um, it's, it's very difficult for anyone to do things by themselves. They do need that support around them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, I'm fully aware that I don't think I'd be here today, uh, you know, having gone through medical school and being a surgeon without support of uh, very close people around me. So I was, you know, for me, that happened to be my parents who were very, very supportive uh, and a couple of friends. Um, so definitely use the support that you have around you because there are times where you may feel like giving up or feel totally overwhelmed. Or for example, if I, you know, came out of an exam feeling really bad about it or thinking I did poorly or or I had a tough case where it didn't go as well as I planned. Being able to have people that I can talk to about it, uh, who are there for me and help lift me up after a hard time is so huge. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, going back to your line of work, you said you spent the night uh, on call at the hospital, so you slept there. Um, mm-hmm. A surgeon's uh, life and a doctor's life is, is a very demanding one. Uh, how do you deal with things like fatigue? Because I, you know, when you work uh, seventy to one hundred hours a week. That's 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 pretty stressful. Yeah, um, I must say, coffee is really like <laughs> my my life support. <laughs> um, um, and then you just have to find ways of coping and kind of recharging. And so again, for me, uh, that's being able to talk with my coworkers, uh, mm-hmm. nurses, co-residents, and staff, and talk about 
things maybe totally unrelated to medicine that kind of give me that mm. little extra spark. And um, when you're operating in the middle of the night or, or, you know, for 30 hours, it's unbelievable how much adrenaline will keep you going. Uh, and so uh, really, though, healthy coping mechanisms, whether it be exercise or meditation or, yeah. or hanging out with loved ones, um, those have been uh, really incremental for, for me and my training. Great. Donna, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you very much for joining me on the show today. It's been a pleasure. I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Thanks for being with us on Moment of Truth today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And that was Donna Mae Kilimarjuk, and she is a cardiac, cardiac surgeon in Ottawa.